Brian, you may be seated. Good morning. Sammy, thank you so much for leading us in worship once again with those songs. Um, my name's Chris. I'm one of the teaching teachers here at Moran Park. Um, if you feel like it's cold in here when you walked in, it's because it, it's because it is cold this morning. And despite your suspicions, this is not my attempt to try to keep you awake during my, my message this morning. I actually had nothing to do uh, with the 49 degrees that it is currently in this, uh, in this auditorium. So if my teeth uh, start chattering and I can't get through the sermon, then we'll just we'll call it good. So <laughs> um, we got one boiler, uh, as uh, Carol mentioned, we got one boiler uh, kicked back in. So hopefully by the, by the end of the service, it'll be warm and you'll be going home at that point and uh, <laughs> it won't matter. Hey, it's uh, the fourth Sunday of Advent, so just... Uh, Advent is the, and today is the, the love, um, love is the Advent theme if you're kind of into that. Um, it's the fourth Sunday leading up to Christmas. Of course, Christmas Eve is next Saturday. Christmas Sunday morning uh, is Christmas itself. So um, good morning to you and, and happy Advent um, this morning to you. Um, we continue this morning in, in a, in a uh, we continue and we're putting it on pause. Um, we're walking, we've been walking through the uh, Gospel of Matthew, and I am going to put the text up that is the next text, but we're actually going to take this text. I, I do want to read it because it brings up the theme of, of marriage, um, and then we're going to pause it because Jesus is going to actually pick up this text later. In, we're in Matthew 5 right now in the Sermon on the Mount. But he's actually going to pick up this text again later. He's going to discuss this theme in Matthew 19, and he's going to expand on it, 12, 12 verses uh, there, as opposed to just the two verses that we have this morning. And then the elders have invited me um, to, because we kind of want to wait to address the, uh, the, the topic of divorce later, and it'll probably come late this spring, early this summer, when we get to Matthew 19, to just kind of wait to discuss that topic then, rather than just this terse Two verses that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32. So let me go ahead and just read this uh, as the way to kick off um, our text this morning and our topic this morning, which is going to be marriage, actually. So Jesus says here, uh, again, this is going to be the, uh, the third antithesis of his Sermon on the Mount of six. It was also said, or you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we have the ideas of marriage, divorce, and adultery here in our text, and that brings up our, our theme for this morning. I just want to really focus on really focus on marriage. What I want to do is I want to just kind of take a step back and I want to I want to look at the theme of marriage. <clears throat> from an epic story perspective. I actually want to start at Genesis and work our way through the storyline of Scripture and see how the theme of marriage, the idea of marriage, is consummated and culminates in epic story Act 6, Revelation 21 and 22, at the end of the story. And what I'm hoping this morning um, is going to, what I hope is that this will infuse those of you who are married you infuse your marriages with unbelievable purpose, hope, and significance. <clears throat> if you're not married, and that's a lot of us, if you're single, I have an unbelievable message for you as well. 
and I hope it infuses your singleness, whether that's voluntary, involuntary, uh, whether you think you have the long-term gift of singleness or whether this is just for, you're hoping this is just for a season of singleness, that I hope that what I share this morning infuses your life as a single person with eternal perspective and eternal meaning and purpose as well. So let's just get, jump right in here and start at the beginning of the epic story of Scripture, Genesis, Genesis 1. Now we've talked about this over and over again that Scripture is not a hodgepodge of biblical truths and moral stories. It's a, scripture is a, a, presents a story, right? And in the beginning of the story, God sets out his plan for the rest of, for the humanity, for the world that he's created, uh, for his ultimate purposes, what he's doing with, with us and with his world. And it starts in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26, 28. The context here is, of course, the sixth day of creation. Uh, the climax of the creation account uh, is day six and then day seven where God rests and says all of it's good. Here in day six, he creates us. He creates humanity and he reveals his purpose for us and he reveals his purpose for marriage. Let's go ahead and take a look at this, Genesis 1, 26, 28. <clears throat> then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created the image of God. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, be fruitful, multiply, male and female. You, you image bearers, be fruitful, multiply. Have, have families and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. We've seen this before. This is a bit review if you've been with us over the past months. What does it mean, what does it mean to be made into the image of God? It's to make us humans unique in that we alone represent God. We are alone are like God. Not that we become gods, but we reflect God. We represent God. We are his royal sons and daughters upon the earth. And whenever you see another image bearer, you're seeing something of God in that person. We are to reflect. Image is image, right? So images are to reflect and refract God's love, God's goodness, God's glory throughout all the earth. And as Male and female come together in marriage and have children. They be fruitful, multiply. They expand Eden. They expand Eden to the ends of the earth. They bring God's rule, God's love, God's glory to the rest of the earth. Bringing God's kingdom to earth as it already is in heaven. Heaven and earth were to be one place and to intersect. God was to be among us and dwell with us and his glory was to fill the earth through us as we enjoy him forever. So we get this idea already of male and female, be fruitful and multiply. We see already that one key component of having marriages is to raise kids, procreation, right? Have children who grow up and 
become image bearers that love God, know God, are ravished by God, satisfied in God, and then they go on and have children. And we expand in this way, Eden, uh, in ever-increasing concentric circles to the ends of the earth. Then we go to Genesis 2. Genesis 1 and 2 is just kind of laying the, the, the plan, right? It's laying out the master plan for God's vision for creation and God's purpose uh, for creation. And Genesis 2 hits again the theme of marriage. <clears throat> uh, Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Marriage is at the heart. Male and female as image bearers. Uh, marriage is at the heart and center of God's plan for the world. <clears throat> it's not peripheral. And the Lord God said it's not good. It's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So we see here another purpose for marriage is going to be it's not good. It's not good to be alone. We need each other. We need intimacy. We're created for intimacy with another, with other people, especially with one in particular. We're social creatures. We need to be able to receive and give love. And so he says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, an etzer, fit for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, goes on here, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. This is Adam now, right? And whatever, the, whatever Adam, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Right, a uh, dog, have you heard it said a, a dog is a man's best friend? No, <laughs> I love my lab, uh, but he's not my best friend. He's not made to be my best friend. The, 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 this helper, this, the, none of the animals were a helper that was fit for the man. Verse 21, and I think the Lord does this on purpose to help Adam to see that none of the, uh, none of the animals are going to be uh, the one that, that, you know, is the helper that's fit for him. The, the companion of his, the desire of his soul. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore we get this passage that says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. This unit that this unit of father and mother has children. When that man and that woman or woman are is full age, they leave their father and mother, it says, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A one flesh union. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. One flesh. Intimacy. Uh, relationship, companionship, love, mutual, shared. And the idea of being naked and, uh, and, not, is the, and not ashamed is the ancient Near East way of saying there's no barriers here. There's, no, there's nothing in between the man and the woman that there's no shame. There's innocence. There's, there's relationship. There's, there's communion at a, deep, at a deep heart level. They know and are known. They trust and are trusted. They love and are loved. 
And of course, as we go now into, we know the story takes a dark turn. I don't want to spend too much time here, but we do know the story takes a dark turn in Epic Story Act 2, Genesis 3. We have the fall, right? And what, I want to just point out what happens to marriage uh, in the fall. Of course, this woven, this couple that's woven uh, together to work together as image bearers to bring the kingdom of God upon the earth, uh, working together, using their gifts and mutual relationship, um, encouraging each other, now become each other's enemies. Remember that the serpent comes and tempts the woman and tempts uh, the man as he's, as he's standing there, watching, uh, we could say, idly by. It goes like this, Genesis 3, 4 to 8. You know the, you know the account. But the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. Remember God said, If you touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you eat of his fruit, you'll die. And the serpent is lying here saying to the woman, You won't surely die. He's, he's contradicting what God has said, undermining her trust in God, right? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired, to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, as a result, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So now the intimacy is lost, right? There's a barrier between the man and the woman. They realize all of a sudden there's shame is infused into the relationship. There's a barrier between uh, the two of them. They, real, they recognize this. And they heard, verse 8, And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now there's a barrier between them horizontally, like man and woman, right, Adam and Eve. And now there's a barrier. They, they sense a, something profoundly horrible has happened, and they, they, they're scared, and they hide themselves uh, from, the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, trying to hide from his holy uh, presence because they know that things are no longer good. They've been separated from him. They know that their sin has separated them from the living God. So the consequences include loss of intimacy at the horizontal level, right? Man and woman now, um, there's, there's barriers between them. There's, 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 there's shame. They're symbolized by the barrier of, of the clothing here. Loss of intimacy between human couples and God are vertical relationship, right? Uh, and the rest of the storyline of Scripture is about Trying is working to heal that, God pursuing us. Um, curse injects, we're not going to read it, but Genesis 3.16, curse, uh, curses inject a fallen power dynamic into the marriage where husband and wife vie for rights and control over each other, um, which wasn't meant to be. And then, of course, finally, death is the ultimate curse, right? For this rebellion, for high treason against the king, the Lord and giver of life, when you're separated from him, uh, the consequence, the natural consequence is death. If you separate yourself off from God and cut yourself off by rebelling against him, cut yourself off from him who is life himself, death is the inevitable, inevitable consequence. And so death cuts us off, not only spiritual death and physical death cut us off, not only from our vertical relationship uh, with God here, but also our horizontal relationship, the one that we were to be with forever as our intimate part, marriage partner, we are eventually cut off from death as we return to the dust. So Genesis 3 reprints this really bleak picture 
uh, of what has happened uh, to marriage. It's been distorted. Uh, it's been uh, twisted. Now there's fallen power dynamics uh, involved, and there's, there's shame, and there's barriers uh, to intimacy. The story continues, though, because God has a plan, right? God has a plan, and we know it's in Jesus to fix this mess that we've created. And God launches that plan in the Old Testament. God launches that plan, and he sets apart Israel to be the bringer of his salvation to the ends of the earth. God's on mission to reclaim his lost world. Darkness and death and sin is not the end of the story. No way. Plan A is still plan A. God is going to find a way, despite human sin, to fill the earth with image bearers who reflect his glory forever and enjoy him and are ravished by his presence forever. And so God kicks off his mission to save us. And I just want to highlight just maybe three things in the Old Testament. Of course, our Old Testaments are 75% of our Bibles, uh, but it's the part of our Bibles that we don't actually understand very well. But let me just touch on three things very quickly as they concern and relate to marriage uh, here in the Old Testament. Number one, divorce. Deuteronomy 24, God legislates uh, and guards against um, divorce as a, this is a part of being a part of this Act 2, Genesis 3, fallen humanity. Divorce comes out of hard, comes in part out of sin. Uh, it happens because, uh, because there's something, some bad choices are made or, or um, sin's involved. And so God understands this. Moses understands understand this, and, and, and God gives regulations that that um, regulate divorce, uh, so that um, it limits relational damage. <clears throat> uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there, but it just I do just want to kind of say that the Old Testament acknowledges that divorce exists and provides some instructions and some principles so that relational damage is minimized. You know, you got uh, women involved who, when they're divorced, have to, uh, if they can be in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, weren't, they couldn't get jobs. <clears throat> it's not like today. And they could be very, uh, very um, put in dangerous situations if they couldn't return back to their parents or their families. Uh, likewise, kids as well, right? So just finding a way to limit the relational uh, damage when divorce does happen. But the second thing I want to say is that uh, God gives us the gift of the book of the Song of Solomon. <clears throat> That's another thing. I want, the second thing I want to mention about the Old Testament very quickly as we kind of do our flyby here at 30,000 feet over the storyline of Scripture. God gives us the book of Song of Solomon, which is marital love poetry. And it picks up the idea of Genesis, the idea, the ideal that's found in Genesis 1 and 2 and celebrates it. If you've never read Song of Solomon and you've only understood it as an allegory between Christ and the church, you've actually missed out. Uh, it's love poetry. That love poetry that celebrates marriage and the ideal of it as found in Genesis 1 and 2. It has echoes of, echoes of Genesis 1 and 2 in it. And it's in the, kind of this mist of a very dark world, right? A very dark world. God gives Song of Solomon and just 
helping uh, Israel to celebrate marriage as they're on mission, helping them to remember the ideal of human marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, how it's supposed to be a place of physical, emotional, spiritual intimacy and trust and love and joy and pleasure. Um, and so maybe take some time together as, as husband and wife to uh, read that together. <clears throat> Third thing I want to say. <clears throat> what begins to happen in various prophetic books is that God begins to say, he is a husband. And that Israel is his bride. God begins to use marriage as a way of describing his relationship with his people. Book of Hosea, chapters 1 to 3, Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 2, other places as well. God uses the idea of human marriage to describe his relationship with his people, that he has a marital relationship, a covenantal relationship with Israel, his people, and that he longs to have um, relationship with his people, longs to have an intimate relationship, a personal relationship with his people. It's not just, it's not just the, the, the rules are about so that the relationship can flourish, but he wants to have intimacy with his people. And he uses, uses the example or the, uses the an, um, language of marriage to describe uh, his faithfulness in a marriage even when his people are unfaithful, right? That he continues to pursue Israel despite the fact that they mess up and mess up and mess up in their unfaithfulness and go after other gods and go after other lovers and go after other husbands. God continues to relentlessly pursue his people in personal relationship and in his faithfulness and in his love, promising to someday restore her heart so that she will re rightly respond uh, to him. So that's the third thing about the Old Testament that the Old Testament does with the theme of marriage is that God begins to talk about his relationship with his people in the language of marriage and uses it uh, to help us understand um, Israel's relationship to him. Well, let's move on to the New Testament <clears throat> and the Jesus epic story act four. Jesus is this long-awaited promised king who fulfills all the ancient promises of the Old Testament, who comes to uh, create a faithful people for God, who will be restored as image bearers and flood the earth um, with a humanity that um, reflects his glory, just like he promised, just like God promised to do in, in Genesis. God promises to make all that come true in and through Jesus and through his work on the cross and through his gift of the Spirit as he restores us into human image bearers uh, who rightly reflect him and know him and love him and, and pursue him and receive his love and reflect his glory to the ends of the earth. Uh, that's all going to happen and coming to fruition and fulfillment in Jesus. And that's what we see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as we move into the New Testament. Jesus doesn't have a ton to say about human marriage, actually. Uh, Matthew 19 is, is one text. But we also get this text, um, a very interesting text in Luke. Remember, Jesus got all kinds of things he's doing. Um, it's not that he's just come to teach about, about marriage, but he does have a couple things to say, including what I want to point out is Luke um, 20. And it's just two short verses here. It has this interesting text 
about human marriage coming to an end. What? Yes, let's read this. Jesus replied, the people of this age, the present age, the fallen age, marry and are given in marriage. What we're all used to, right? But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come, the new creation, and the resurrection from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels who cannot die. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. What? You get that? Human marriage, the institution of marriage, is temporary. Until Act 6, when it comes to an end. Not until Act 6. Up to Act 6, where it comes to an end. I initially read this, and Mindy and I were just freshly married. We read this, and I, I mourned. I was like, I just got married. I love Mindy. I want to be married forever to Mindy. I don't want it to come to an end. I don't want to be like an angel with wings and just kind of float around and be lonely. I want to be with Mindy, my best friend, my lover, uh, my my partner in crime, Um, the one who we're raising kids with and have dreams for and want to be on mission together with. But Jesus says that's going to come, that human institution of marriage is going to come to an end when the new creation comes. Why? Why won't we be married in the new creation? Why won't we be married in the age to come? Let's hold off just for a second, but I just want you to see. I want to answer that question in just a moment with my next text. But I just want you to see here that human marriage, which started in Genesis 1, that institution comes to an end in Revelation 21 22. Why? Why? Why will that happen? Let's move to Epic Story Act 5, where Jesus now has brought his disciples. He's, he's died on the cross. He's been raised from God's raised him from the dead. He's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He pours out the Holy Spirit upon his church, creates a faithful people for himself, now bringing the message. Uh, to the ends of the earth. Uh, Epic story, Act 5, is the, the church age, right? The, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The first advent and the second advent. We're celebrating advent right now where we look back to the first advent and look forward to the second advent, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes to consummate his kingdom and bring about the resurrection of the world and the resurrection of the dead. So we're living in this already not yet. We're living in the first coming between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Paul says this about marriage. This is the most significant um, text about human marriage uh, in the New Testament um, in, in Act 5. It's Ephesians 5, 25 to 32. And my fingertips are starting to feel the, I don't know how you're doing. You're doing good? Feel free to like dance in the aisles if you need to a little bit or um, whatever you need to do to stay warm there. Somebody doesn't have a coat. My coat is sitting here. You can borrow my coat. <clears throat> Let's read this. 
Ephesians 5, 25 to 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now notice here, I want to just kind of see the, the, the back and forth, the play between human marriage, husband and wife, and the divine marriage between Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Notice the relationship between Christ and the church and husbands and wives. Church and Christ, wives and husbands. For no one ever hated his own flesh, verse 29, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2, quotes from Epic Story, Act 1, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. What's going on here? We see if I can say this right. <clears throat> we might be tempted to think that the human institution of marriage, the divinely appointed institution of marriage there in Genesis 1-2 between a husband and a wife functions as a way to say something about Jesus and his church. But it's actually the other way around. Paul is saying here that the marriage relationship between Christ and his church is in fact the the model upon which human marriage is built. That is, before the foundation of the world, God had Christ's relationship with his bride, the church, in view, and therefore created human marriage to reflect it. Human marriage, Christian marriage, is a signpost that points forward to the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. And so when people are looking at our marriages, our marriages are infused with meaning and purpose and significance because they point to eternal realities. They point to the ultimate marriage that's going to happen at the end of time. Or should I say at the beginning of the true story. The ultimate marriage between Christ and his church when people look at our marriages, they're to see something about Jesus and his love for his bride and something about the bride's love and response as he pursues her in love and pursues her heart. She's responding and reciprocating that love and loving him in return. Seeing our marriages, people see, our to see something about the ultimate marriage, about what life is all about about that ultimate relationship where all of history is, is heading toward, this ultimate place where God, where Jesus Christ will be with his people forever in an intimate, personal, whole, loving, accepting, satisfying 
relationship of joy and delight and hope and pleasure forever. That's what Paul is saying here. Genesis 2, he says, actually is ultimately about Christ and the church. So, why does human marriage come to an end at the end of time? Because the shadow, I'm sorry, because the reality to, point, to which it pointed has, has arrived in its fullness, in its consummated glory. Just like circumcision in the Old Testament has given away to circumcision of the heart, or just like the temple in the Old Testament has given away to the reality of God dwelling with us, Emmanuel, and Jesus, right? The fulfillment of the temple idea, coming to fulfillment with Jesus dwelling with his people forever. The shadows give way to the reality, the shadow of, of human marriage, as wonderful as it can be, gives way and is no longer needed because the reality has arrived in Jesus Christ and his relationship with his bride forever, where every heart will be satisfied, every intimate longing will be fulfilled, every desire met for love and acceptance and wholeness and joy. Remember the text from Luke that we read that says marriage is coming to an end? Said it's because they are God's children. We be, we're put into this intimate family with God and with others where all longings for intimacy will be met and be human marriage will be superseded. Will be fulfilled in an unbelievable way. So marriage today functions as a signpost. Signposts point forward to something else, right? Point forward something to greater, something greater to come. Your marriage is, if you're married, is to be an a living parable or an enacted parable that it's missional right you're 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 functioning as an image bearer that's reflecting something about the glory of god about the glory of christ and his relationship to the church in your human marriages and people look at you there to see and see do see something about God and about Christ and his church, giving our, infusing our marriages with eternal meaning, unbelievable significance. So human marriage is sacred but provisional and functions as a living parable that displays the ultimate spiritual marriage between Christ and the church that will last, that will last for forever. Human marriage is Christocentric. It displays Christ's marriage to his bride, the church, to a watching, a dying world, a watching world, and is meant to give them hope. And therefore, it's Christocentric and it's also missional. Your marriage is missional. And I hope that you'll see it that way. Let's continue to epic story, Acts 6, and the, and the, and the end of the story, the climax of the story. Uh, Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. 
This is coming to the very end of the story. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, his church. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, of the people of God. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Going to be a party like no party has ever been seen before. Or Revelation 21, 1 to 5. This is just a couple of chapters later. This is the end of the end uh, of time, the end of the storyline of Scripture. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The people of God being brought to King Jesus, the husband, so that they can be together forever. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. The former things, the old way, age has passed away. And he was seated on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What about singleness? <clears throat> As we kind of come to a, our conclusion and we come to the end and with maybe some with a little bit of application, I want to talk about singleness here uh, just a moment. Are Christians who are single second-rate people? No. Whether you're single because you're a teen and you just haven't been married yet, whether you're single because you've been through a divorce, whether you're single because you've chosen to be single, whether you are single because your husband, your spouse, your wife, your husband died, or just marriage, God just hasn't brought Mr. Right or Mrs. Miss Right your way yet. Maybe involuntary or voluntary, Christians are not second-rate. Christians are not second-rate people not afterthoughts. In fact, God, God gives the gift of singleness. God gives the gift of seasons of singleness. God sometimes gives short-term gifts of singleness. And sometimes he gives permanent or long-term gifts of singleness. Now, some of you who want to be married and aren't yet married and who have this season of gift of singleness may think to yourself, well, I don't want this gift. I want to be married. And that's okay. 
If you can, if the Lord brings that person to you, please do marry. No problem with that. But I want you to see these seasons of singleness. And if you have the permanent gift of singleness, I want you to see it as exactly that, a gift. And I want to make an argument that singleness is also functions in a different way from marriage but just as importantly functions as a signpost to the new creation. My first point of my argument is that Jesus was single. Our hero, the hero of the whole story, was single. He never got married. As a Jew of the first century, he should have gotten married. All Jews got married in fulfillment of Genesis 1 and 2. The rabbis, and we have this in the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are Jewish, uh, Jewish writings of the early period, uh, it was the duty of every man to find a wife to get married so that you could obey the very first command of Scripture was, which was to be fruitful and multiply. Have kids, raise families. That was the rabbinic, that was the rabbinic thing. Get married, have kids, fulfill God's mandate to fill the earth with image bearers who love God. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was single. Why did he remain single? We have no one Bible verse that we can point to. Heat, perhaps. Do you hear can you hear that? All right. We have no one single verse that we can point to, but the culmination of the data points to the fact that Jesus did not get married so that he could fully focus on doing the will of the Father. He was laser-focused. He was laser-focused on fulfilling and doing the will of the Father. All he wanted to do was do his God's will. All he wanted to do was be on mission. All he wanted to do was do what, G what God, his Father, had for him to do. He wanted to fully devote himself to God. And Paul will talk about this in 1 Corinthians 7. If you've never read 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about singleness and marriage. And Paul himself says it's the single person who can devote themselves fully to God without the hindrances of having to take, take taking care of, you know, being concerned about taking care of children or taking care of a spouse, which are legitimate things that you have to do if you are married. You, you need to do that. You want to do that. But if you don't have those things, to worry about, then you can just fully laser focus, zero in on God. That's and doing His will and carrying out His mission upon the earth. So we don't have one single Bible verse we can point to, but that's the culmination, I think, of the of the data. Jesus chose singleness so that He could devote Himself fully to His Father in heaven and to His will and carrying out His mission upon the earth. Second data point here for me is Paul. Paul was also a Jew who was single. We don't know if he was married before he met Christ, but by the time he writes uh, Corinthians, he's definitely single. And I think he himself preferred, he said he himself prefers singleness, 1 Corinthians 7. He's, you know, Genesis 1 says, it's not good for man to be alone. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, it is good for you to remain single. I would prefer that you would be like me so that you could devote yourself fully to the Lord. 
devote yourself fully to being satisfied in his presence and growing in your relationship with him and doing his work and being unencumbered by the things of the world that come with marriage. Paul wanted to be single. He didn't want to be married. He wanted to give himself fully to his Lord. That brings me to why I think singleness also functions then as a signpost pointing forward to the reality that's to come because human marriage is also going to come to an end. Right? I've said that. Sorry. Human marriage is going to come to an end, like I said, like I argued. And we're all going to be in the new creation single. But nobody's going to be alone because we're all going to be part of one big happy family where there's going to be no shame, there's going to be no sin, there's going to be no barriers, there's going to be trust, there's going to be love, there's going to be acceptance, there's going to be intimacy, there's going to be relationship, there's going to be joy. Every need met for intimacy, relational intimacy. Therefore, our singles function as signposts that say, my needs are going to be fully satisfied in Christ. My needs are fully satisfied in Christ. If I want to be married, I can be. But I'm pointing forward and saying, I don't need that to be happy. I don't need sex. I don't need, um, I don't need a marriage relationship to be satisfied. I have Christ. And while I'm going to be, because the family of God is imperfect now, but it's not going to be then. It's going to be perfect then. My singleness points to that reality as a signpost to others that Christ is all in all and that Christ will be all in all. So both marriage and singleness function as signposts that point to the age to come when Christ will consummate his relationship with his people and we will enjoy him forever. In conclusion, conclusion, if you're married, make your marriage a signpost of the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. Know and take hope and encouragement that your marriage has eternal significance and purpose and meaning. It's not, and then don't take me wrong here, it's not just about raising kids and um, having, a fr having a best friend. Those are good things. Marriage is awesome. But when you think of it, in the, I need you to get an internal perspective. I need you to see marriage in light of, light of the storyline of Scripture and in light of the, light of the end, right? The, the end game, right? And that infuses your marriage with unbelievable meaning and purpose now. And singles, you too, your marriage, I mean, your marriage, you're not married, your singleness is infused with eternal meaning and purpose as you point forward to the reality that Christ satisfies and that the spiritual family that we will all enjoy together, the intimacy that we will enjoy together with vertical relationship with Jesus Christ and our horizontal relationships with the multitude of, of, our, of our brothers and sisters uh, in the new world that there will be no loneliness, that there will be completely satisfied hearts and we won't need human marriage to do that. 
And by the way, anybody that's married in this room, can we just, can we just be honest for the singles that are in the, in the room? Human marriage does not satisfy. It does not ultimately satisfy the deepest desires of my heart. If you are thinking, if I could just get married, then I would be happy. If I could just get married, then I would be satisfied. Any, 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 any human marriages in here want to just testify that it ain't perfect, right? In fact, some days it's work, right? Some days it's a lot of work. And sometimes there's a lot of heartache. And we don't get it right. And it's imperfect. And we, we do our best by God's grace. But your singleness points forward to that day to say satisfaction is coming. Intimacy is coming. Nobody's going to be alone. Every need is going to be met. And it's just going to be one great big party. And we're all going to be full of joy, ravished by his glory forever. Let me uh, close there. I do think we have uh, a prayer team. And I think we have discernment seats. If there's a, a word that you want to share, um, I think, is it, Joe, are you, and Jack, are you prayer? Okay, are you discernment seats? We'll have uh, discernment seats. We'll have a prayer team. Sam, why don't you come forward? Oh, just one more song. Rejoice in your marriages and what they point to. Singleness, rejoice in what your singleness points to. Let's worship our Lord.